Welcome to the Student Affairs Spectacular, the weekly podcast giving you a front row seat to the greatest student affairs show on earth. And now your ringmasters, Tom Kriegelstein and Dustin Ramsdell. Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome to this episode number 133 uh, with Grant Schroll. Uh, so we're talking about design thinking. Uh, this is part two uh, from last week's episode. So, and I have to give a tip of the hat uh, for this, uh, both of these episodes uh, to uh, Brian LeDuc, uh, who introduced me to both of these people, uh, really got me thinking about this topic and how we could uh, go about it. So uh, both Kathleen last week and Grant this week shared a lot of cool stuff. Uh, really appreciate both of their time. Uh, Grant has a lot of great knowledge that he shares uh, for this episode, some cool stuff down in the show notes. Uh, my audio is a little bit uh, dicey, uh, so I apologize for that, but all the good stuff is coming from Grant. Listen to him. His audio is perfect. So uh, yeah, just uh, enjoy this episode. It's a good one. Uh, episode 133 with Grant Schroll. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I appreciate you, uh, again, just making time for this and um, yeah, talking kind of uh, design thinking and a very broad sense and higher education um, sort of was something that I wanted to get to for a while because I... Uh, back in undergrad, I had a leadership minor, and one of the, um, the professors there was really into all this kind of stuff. So I like applying it in just kind of a general leadership sense. Um, sure. So that's sort of where I was introduced to it way back when. Um, so it's always been on my mind. We did like, uh, uh, like, just sort of like applying the learning to like going into different spaces on campus. This way, like, how could we kind of design this better to achieve the goals that we want to achieve for, for like. Um, I believe it was like a graduate student lounge in one of the um, the schools there. So um, that was, I guess, sort of what it was a direct application of what I uh, hope to talk about for this podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, before we get to any of that, though, we will start out here uh, as we always do. If you just want to give a uh, introduction of yourself and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, my name is Grant Schroll, and um, I suppose if we want to go back to sort of my official training. I studied industrial engineering at the University of Michigan, and uh, it was really through that program that I was first kind of exposed to design thinking. And so that actually happened through a pretty unique class that I took. It was very interdisciplinary. It actually brought together MBA business school students with uh, industrial engineers and art students. And through that program, we actually got assigned to work with a nonprofit in Detroit to actually come up with what we were calling micro businesses. So essentially we would design a product that we could turn into a small scale business, all of the manufacturing and operations being run by actual folks in Detroit who needed some entry level job experience. Mm -hmm. And so um, we talked a lot about design thinking and about how that process and methodology for addressing a problem could be implemented in a way that would actually lead to something that might work. And um, really the big takeaway for me from that experience was that, wow, this is a powerful process that could really be used just about anywhere. <laughs> and so uh, later on in my experience as an undergrad, I, I kind of turned that critical eye on my own experience as a student. And I started thinking critically about all the different structures and just the experiences that I was having and, and really the takeaway that I had that was really formative for the rest of my career thus far was that I felt as if I was just kind of going through the motions. Um, when I took a step back and tried to think about why is it I'm studying this particular degree? Uh, why is it that I go to these classes and I have these experiences outside of the classroom? 
um, I just kind of felt like I was going through the motions and, and living a life that was prescribed by somebody else, perhaps, or even just by the dominant narrative. And so as I started trying to think about, well, what do I do about all of this? I realized that I certainly wasn't alone and that this was actually really common. And, um, you know, upon thinking about that even more, I was like, wow, if I feel this way and I'm surrounded by other people who just seem to be kind of going through the motions at an elite institution, I mean, surely this is a systemic problem in higher ed. And so that was really kind of the grain of insight that set me off on a trajectory towards um, kind of trying to redesign many different facets of higher ed, both from a you know, small scale level all the way through a big picture structural level. And so one of the first things that I did to kind of dive into that was actually launching a nonprofit um, that was focused on delivering programming to undergraduate students around this concept of figure out what you really want, who you are as an individual. Um, our slogan was discover and pursue what moves you. And I think that speaks to what we were trying to accomplish better than just about anything else I can say. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up um, running that organization for about 18 months. And as far as student outcomes went, we had a phenomenal program. Uh, we were doing retreats and follow-up workshops and mentorship and coaching with uh, quite a few undergraduate students. And um, they loved the experience. We learned a lot really quickly. We iterated on the program and figured out how to offer better and more impactful sessions and workshops. Um, but really, at the end of the day, I had no idea what I was doing when it came to actually building a sustainable and financially sound organization. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, it got to the point where I had to realize that you know, this mission might still be just as important as it was when I started, but the particular solution just wasn't working out. And so at that point, I transitioned to something very different. Um, I ended up moving to another state and joining on with a tech startup that was actually building a product for grocery retail. And um, I came on board and became the head of innovation and strategy. And in that role, I learned a whole lot about what it takes to both build a product as well as a company as a whole. Um, I kind of like to think of it as a guerrilla MBA program because I got to do so many of the things that a traditional MBA program would teach you. And it was all in this condensed learning experience with real world uh, outcomes. <laughs> and so um, as much as I learned and as much as I enjoyed the intellectual challenge, my heart was not in it at all. Um, I really struggled to get excited about helping big companies like Kraft and Pepsi sell more of their products. And so I kind of got to a point where I realized I needed to get back to the work that I was passionate about um, and I needed to get back to something that gave me energy. And so that's when I made the transition back into the higher ed world. And I was very intentional about finding an opportunity that would allow me to work with higher ed, but not inside of it. And so that's really what I do now. Um, my title is consultant and I work with education advisory board. Um, and really my day job is to work with different institutions all across the country to understand what their student experience looks like today and then actually problem solve all of those challenges to try to increase the probability that students will be successful. So really every day that I'm going in to work, I am solving problems for students. I'm learning about different institutions and the different ways that they serve their students, the different demographics, the changing pressures of higher ed. Um, and it's really been a fantastic vantage point for me, both professionally and personally, 
to learn as much as I can about higher ed and about today's students so that I can do a better job of trying to work with these institutions to better serve those students. And so that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, yeah which is, uh, I feel like I'll have to talk to you uh, offline about that because it's very interesting to me because there's a lot of these uh, things like the EAB um, Educational Advisory Board uh, that uh, I didn't know existed, even like the job that I have now, I didn't know the company existed or like what they were doing existed before I like, you know, found the job and applied and started working for it. So I, I'm sure, very sure. intrigued by, like I said, it's like, that could be a whole other podcast or discussion. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really cool. Like you said, just like you're because um, it's sort of at the vantage point that I'm at now and a very different, obviously, like nuts and bolts of it, but uh, working with higher ed, but not in it, um, mm -hmm. sort of augmenting the obviously the, the great work that they've been doing for uh, decades and, you know, very long time for certain institutions, but sort of augmenting it with technology and insights and analytics and all this different kind of stuff, just a very different uh, mindset and skill set and tools and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, and obviously, like, you've had a, a very long, uh, you know, or I guess, you know, in the entirety of the, the career that you've had so far, of sort of operating in a innovative design thinking kind of mindset. And um, I think, yeah, I'll ask this to everyone to sort of see where they're kind of coming at it, uh, where they're coming at it from. But uh, so in a nutshell for you, before we get into anything else, well, what is design thinking uh, to you? Like, how would you summarize it to someone who hasn't heard the term before? Sure. Um, I think of design thinking as a process, first and foremost, and it's a process that puts the person that you're designing for at the center of everything that you do. And so what makes this methodology different and unique than a lot of the other design practices that have been happening for decades, if not centuries, is that it was the first to say, if you don't connect with the end user, if you don't solve a real problem for that person, and if they're not the ones articulating that problem to you, what's the point? You're just going to build something that you might think is great, but that won't really solve a problem for an actual human that has that problem. And so the methodology itself, um, it, people break it down in a bunch of different ways, but the one that I like best is broken into five parts. And part one is empathize. So empathize, again, is really all about understanding what that user, what that person is going through. And that's not just asking them a few questions. It's actually getting uh, to spend time with them. It's actually experiencing what they experience, spending a day in their shoes. And so there's a whole bunch of different techniques that designers will use to do that and to get real authentic insights about the person they're designing for. But that's step one, empathize. Step two is define. And so define has to do with um, actually articulating what the problem is. And there's a really great example that I like to use, which is if I come to you and say, design a new coffee mug, you're only going to come up with so many solutions. But if instead I say, create a new way for people to consume liquid beverages, all of a sudden that framing gives you so many more possibilities. It doesn't have to be a cup. It doesn't have to just work with coffee. Um, and so the way that you actually define the problem sets up the possibility of solutions that might come to the table. The third step is what they call ideate. And so ideate just means come up with ideas. And so kind of the, the core thing that design thinking proponents will talk about is 
encourage every idea, even the crazy ones. And so you'll often see people in a big room brainstorming together with sticky notes and we'll just encourage wild ideas. So everyone will just be coming up with things and they'll be piggybacking off of one another. And it's really about generating, you know, huge amounts, uh, quantity <laughs> over quality. Uh, the, the first, the first step is just quantity because when one person comes up with a crazy idea and another person thinks of something that actually maybe is less crazy, but they wouldn't have thought of otherwise, um, it just leads to a bigger variety of possible solutions. The fourth step is what we call prototype. So now that you've got your huge mess of possible ideas, you need to kind of filter it down, focus in on something that seems reasonable and attainable, and then go out and build something. So this is another thing that sets design thinking apart from a lot of other methodologies. We're not going to get it right the first time. And that's not the goal. The goal is just to create something, anything, really quickly and get it out there in front of those users, the people you're trying to solve the problem for, to get their feedback. So building a prototype, it can be really, really simple. Um, you know, A lot of people who practice design thinking will build something out of spare parts. They will create a video instead of actually building out a, a software tool. They will set up a temporary room and design it the way that they would actually build a real room. And all of these are ways of really quickly creating a prototype so you can actually get real feedback before you've invested so much that it's too late to make changes. And then step five is testing. So it's actually getting it in the hands of those people and collecting feedback. Uh, like I said, it's really an iterative process. So step five, testing, is all about getting that feedback so you can make those changes and iterate to something that's even better than where you started. Again, what I think is so great about this process is that you can really apply it just about anywhere if you take the time to stop and think about it. Um, and what's so unique about this is that, number one, you're solving problems that matter for the people who are most affected. And number two, you're doing it quickly and iteratively. So you end up coming to a solution faster than you might otherwise doing it without taking on the level of risk that you might if you come up with a perfect polished solution before ever showing it to the person who you're designing for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a thing that's come up on this podcast uh, a few times. It's sort of the origin story of this podcast was sort of that idea of um, I did this very like small scale uh, podcast for very little money when I was a grad student for this internship that I was doing that was highlighting uh, student organizations on the campus that I was on. And uh, that caught the attention of the person that I worked with for this podcast, Tom. Uh, and it was the idea that it was just this little prototype that was sort of a proof of concept of like what he was thinking about doing. And then we decided to invest uh, resources in the hardware and the software and like, you know, other kind of stuff. But if I was just like, you know, like, yeah, let's start a podcast and we built up all this infrastructure and then it just completely failed right and like right. you said it's it, it that's where people almost are like you know what maybe we shouldn't even bother trying to do a podcast because it's you know it's going to be way too mm -hmm. expensive it's like well no we could like just do this small little thing and you'd be like oh okay that i can see what success looks like that'd be a really yep. novel thing for us to do and um yeah so yeah really, uh, and, and i bet you learned a lot in those early days right yeah i mean uh <laughs> yeah because i mean even just with uh yeah doing like the prototype phase was like very helpful and then um yeah, like in the early days of just like doing it because we didn't, um, yeah, we did a fair amount of like kind of uh, preparation and stuff, but then it was also just like getting out there and doing it and learning by doing um, in the sense of like, you know, we would take breaks to be able to like sort of, you know, process and uh, reconfigure things. So uh, like you said, it's like a very, 
you know, it's a cycle. It's a process that you're going to uh, test things and then go back and like, okay, well, like this worked. It's, you know, it didn't work. So what can we do differently? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I really like the, the, uh, you know, the emphasis on empathy uh, that you had, uh, you know, in this process that um, I remember when we were talking about in my leadership class, it was, I, I think it was sort of an application of the empathy part was, uh, going and being in the space that we were like trying to like redesign, you know, theoretically yeah, for the sure. assignment to like sort of empathize with like we'd be in there and be like, oh man, it's really hard to do this. Like, oh, I wish this was in here. Like, so you sort yeah. of empathize versus just like, yeah, if you, uh, I think sometimes, and we'll sort of segue here, you know, sometimes the thought is on campus, like if you build it, they will come, which is not necessarily you know that is not necessarily a truth especially right, like certainly <laughs> yeah like all the demands on students times if you're if you're trying to like build out a you know a resource uh you know whether it's online or off uh, a space or something for people to use you know there's so many competing things for people's time and also like uh places for people to go or you know whatever but um yeah it's not necessarily that if you build it they will come so i think using a process like this could be really helpful to um you know, kind of maximize the potential of it. So, um, yeah, because I think we, you know, I'm just kind of jump ahead here is that, yeah, sure. you know, just seeing, you know, uh, kind of, you know, how this process works and kind of, you know, what makes it valuable. How do you see this perspective kind of theoretically or, you know, anything that you've seen in actuality, you know, applying to higher ed and like campus life, anything that, um, like I said, you can just think of off the top of your head or that you've actually seen be, you know, put into place. Yeah, sure. So I think it's it's really easy to come up with examples of poor design in higher ed, both for student services as well as just the student experience. Um, but I think there's also a lot of really positive stuff that's going on. Um, so I, I think it's probably most helpful to think about this in three different places. So the first would be students. Where can design thinking be useful for students? Um, the next would be instructors. So how could instructors, faculty, uh, professors, how could they incorporate design thinking into their work? And then lastly, of course, the administrators and school leadership. In what ways can they incorporate design thinking into the work that they're doing to serve their institution? So I want to touch on all three because I think they're all different but related in a lot of ways. So let's start with students. Um, there has been a sort of trend towards teaching design thinking. And a lot of this is actually coming from the corporate sector where companies are realizing how valuable these skills are um, to create things that people actually want to buy, both products and services. And so I've seen a growing number of schools trying to either offer or incorporate some aspects of design thinking training into the undergraduate and graduate experience. And probably the leader in this space is actually Stanford. So they've got something called the D School or the Design School. And it is an interdisciplinary graduate level program. And part of what makes it so cool and unique is that you can't get a master's or PhD in design thinking Instead, while you're pursuing a master's or PhD in a different discipline, you can also join the D school program. And so as a result, they've brought together a bunch of really high caliber students across all sorts of different disciplines to work on design thinking challenges. And you can imagine when you bring together people with such different backgrounds and skill sets and expertise, they come up with some really high caliber innovative stuff. And so they're really leading the way in design thinking education, um, but they've done a good job of trying to make what they do very accessible so other people can go after it. 
And so I'm seeing more and more of this in other institutions where even at the undergraduate level, there are courses that are explicitly geared towards teaching design thinking, whether that's the whole theme of the course or just one component of it. Um, I definitely think that that's something that I would love to see continuing. Um, and I think students are really, really benefiting from it because when it goes, when it comes time to go and meet with a potential employer or apply to a graduate school, when a student is fluent in the design thinking methodology, um, they just have so much more to offer than others who aren't familiar with that. So that's, that's where I'd love to see more students um, interacting with design thinking. And it's really such a critical 21st century skill to be able to design something that people actually want. <laughs> um, so then the next would be instructors. So when I think about what's going on with instructors and pedagogy, um, I think there's some really interesting ways in which uh, instructors and faculty have kind of implemented design thinking. Maybe they don't explicitly call it that. Um, but essentially what it boils down to is when you really listen to students, when you ask students what they want from their educational experience, very few people are going to tell you, I want more lectures. I want more PowerPoints. I want more grades and rubrics. So now we're starting to see some of the more innovative things going on in pedagogy would be things like gamification. So there are all sorts of examples of different professors trying to incorporate gamification into the very structure of their class. So what if instead of assuming that you start with zero points for the semester and you have to earn points that translate into a grade, let's, let's try flipping that. So instead, you're going to start with 100 points and you're going to potentially lose points along the way when you don't accomplish certain things. So all of a sudden, this has totally flipped, flipped the script, and it's a more gamified experience where students are actually earning points and hitting different milestones, um, and there's some great examples of where this is happening and how it's working really well. I think another example would be kind of my own experience working in a really interdisciplinary classroom setting. Um, so you'll hear a lot of students say things like, I wish I had more experience in the real world. I wish I had more projects where I got to solve real problems instead of just trying to regurgitate things from a textbook. And so I have really enjoyed seeing that more and more institutions are offering some of these interdisciplinary design uh, courses where they're collaborating with local organizations and businesses and students are actually solving problems in their communities that have real impact. Um, so that's another great example, in my opinion, of where instructors and just kind of universities in general are, are listening to students and they're empathizing with their core user, those students, and building something and iterating on it um, such that it generates a better experience for those students. Mm -hmm. And then the third category that uh, I like to think about would be administration, leadership, student affairs things like that. So, you know, we have all sorts of different services that we offer students. There are all sorts of different spaces that we design for our students. And in what ways could we use design thinking to improve upon those offerings? So, you know, in my day job, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the actual administrative and logistical processes that students have to go through to reach certain milestones. So whether it's registering for classes or completing different medical paperwork when you're onboarding as a new student, 
there are so many opportunities to streamline and improve these processes to make a better experience for the students and also to reduce dropout and fatigue and frustration along the way. So if you were to take a design thinking lens to really any of these logistical administrative processes, you would start by potentially asking a student, what are you going through? And I think this is most tangible with the sort of onboarding experience that a new student has as they're coming into class um, for the first time. They are excited. They are nervous. They are uh, feeling really confident because they probably, you know, are, had just done really well and they're excited about school. But they're also a little bit nervous about uh, how do I navigate this new thing that I've not been to before. And so if we were to really get into the mind of that new student and then try to redesign that onboarding experience, there are so many different places where we could inject some enthusiasm, we could inject some reinforcement. Um, and so I think when it comes to thinking about what we force our students to go through just to get started, um, design thinking has a lot to offer to improve those. When we think about student spaces and programs, um, again, it's really easy for us as administrators or staff to come up with a solution in our own little bubble that we think is great, we think it's perfect, maybe it makes our lives a little bit easier, but unless we really listen to what students are asking for and get them involved in the process early on, it's really easy to make mistakes, right? Um, I think a classic example of this is when a university spends a ton of money and time building a new facility that is so beautiful and pristine and expensive that they end up uh, restricting access to it, for example. So I've, I've worked with several schools where students don't have enough spaces to meet, and yet there are two entire floors of the student center that they are not allowed to go in unless there's an instructor there. So what's actually most valuable here? Having a really pristine, beautiful, expensive room that looks good on paper or designing a space that's actually functional and has multiple purposes and allows students to actually get together and work on teamwork and projects and have homework spaces. Um, that, that's just a, a really tangible example of where designing with the student in mind and as part of the process leads to a product that people are actually thrilled about. Yeah, I mean, I think just the biggest takeaway, because I appreciate how like comprehensive you were about, because yeah, it's like all those are kind of in the same like uh, kind of big tent of a you know university community of all those aspects of the you know professors and students and the administration and everything, um, but just like the common thread was like obviously yeah like the empathy for, part for uh, listening uh, to students and bringing them into the process and I think if if nothing else I think that can be a takeaway of just like, like <laughs> right. listen to your students bring them in like because I think. I guess I've never been in that sort of like 30,000 feet up position, but I feel like there's so much like they always want to like solicit feedback, but sometimes I don't know if they're actually really listening to it or really taking it in or really mm -hmm. like, you know, making those changes based on that feedback. It might be like, okay, yeah, 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 great. Like, you know, you've been listened to, just be happy with that or something, you know, like some places maybe like it's kind of a sliding scale that, you know, whether they don't listen at all, they get feedback, but they don't really know what to do with it or they actually get all the feedback and really, you know, adapt with it but um, right yeah, well I, I gotta tell you there was a time where I um, was invited to participate in this committee that consisted of faculty administrators a provost level individual and we were going to try to reimagine the future of digital and engaged education and uh, when I showed up to the first meeting there was one student in the room 
out of 60 plus people. And I threw a fit about it. I said, we needed to have more students here because if we're going to try to redesign a student centric experience, we need to have their input. We need to actually build something that they're going to want. And we need to build it in a way that is low risk, quick to try, and that will iterate on. And so when you can get all those pieces together, it's so much easier to actually make incremental progress because the barrier to entry is lower, the risk is lower. It's, it's really just about getting something that's good enough that you can test it and you can get more feedback and you can iterate on whatever it is you're trying to build and ultimately come up with something that works sooner and that people are happier with. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, so, you know, somebody's listening to this episode, they're like, that all sounds great. I totally get it. Uh, but I don't see how I could possibly like start doing that or, you know, implement that on my campus. So what tips, uh, you know, they, they kind of have all the uh, sort of the building blocks and, you know, the enthusiasm, but like just any sort of help to kind of scaffold to build that up of like getting this mindset integrated for their for their team, for their department. Um, you know, what tips would you give to like implement this mindset? Yeah, no, that's definitely probably the most important question, right, is um, the theory is one thing, but the practice is everything else. So I would say start small. Um, this doesn't have to be something that takes months and requires input from dozens of people and requires a big budget. Um, you can do design thinking on a really small scale starting today. So when you think about, you know, what's a challenge that you're trying to overcome right now? What's a problem in your in your working life or in your day-to-day -day experience? Think about how can I go and actually empathize with a user? How can I go and actually empathize with the person that I'm serving? Or maybe it's just my own team. And start from there. Figure out exactly what the problem is. Define that problem. Figure out what the scope is. And then come up with ideas, get four or five people in a room together, do a brainstorming session, put ideas up on a board. Um, and then the next step prototype, this is where I think a lot of people get scared off. They say, Oh, I have to build something. I have to actually change something about what I do too much effort, too much work, too expensive, whatever. Um, and that's why I tried to really stress that in the prototype phase, it's really about creating the most minimal thing that conveys your idea, conveys your message. So let's say you're trying to, um, you know, redesign a space for students. And, um, you know, this is a process that would normally take several years. It would require input from dozens of different people from across campus. Um, I would say start by talking with whoever's going to be using that space. Get a bunch of those folks in the room. Go and see their current spaces. Understand what their daily experience is like right now. Uh, understand what they would hope for in this new space. Uh, you know, Try to empathize and get to the core of what they care about. And then when it's time to actually prototype after you've come up with a whole bunch of ideas, take an existing space that's underutilized or or not being used at all, and lay it out. You can use cardboard, you can use paper, you can use tape. Um, just build whatever minimal structure you need to convey your idea and create a sense of what the vision actually would be. And then take those users, take those people you're designing for, and bring them into that space that you've just created. Have them walk around, have them tell you where they would move different objects in the room, how they would change something. Have them actually pretend to use the different things that you've put out for them to use. Um, and again, in that process, you have spent very little time, very little money, and you will learn so much more 
from just taking those really rough and dirty steps um, than you would if you spent months planning with a committee and bringing in an architect and spending a lot of money and not actually consulting the people who will get stuck in the space you're designing for. Um, so, so really the takeaway here is find the smallest, easiest way to get started and don't be afraid to just try. Um, I think that's really what's so beautiful about the design thinking methodology is it's really hard to fail. You know, um, the worst that happens is that the prototype you come up with didn't communicate your message and people didn't get it. And, and that's that. Or let's say you define the problem poorly and the, the ideas you come up with didn't really go anywhere. You know what? In both of those situations, you've spent probably just a couple of days and probably no money. And it's not the end of the world. So it's a really low risk thing to try. And it's a really powerful tool when you get good at it. So my advice would really be just find a problem in your own sphere where you could try this methodology and see what happens. And, you know, from there, just try to learn more about it. Uh, maybe participate in a design thinking workshop. There are cities all over the country that offer them. Um, and it's, it's something that you really just have to try. And once you've done it, you'll, you'll probably get the bug and you'll try to find ways to include this in everything that you do. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Cause I think, uh, yeah, I know just in, uh, you know, changes in any parts of our lives, I think building up confidence. Yeah. I can like just have that momentum to carry you through. And if it is like, you know, for, yeah, say it's like an online process that you can tinker with and it's very low risk. I think you implementing this philosophy, having it work, can then, like you said, you'll catch the bug and sort of carry it on elsewhere. And I think that that's good advice to help uh, implement it as a sort of start tinkering with something small versus, yeah, like, you know, it's like, oh, let's like completely like renovate an entire building, like the, the guts of it or something. And how do we like redesign a residence hall? It's like, I could right. be big. That, that may be big. So like, yeah, let's like, yeah figure out yeah like you said something like onboarding students it's like we just have to get them to like give us paperwork or sign things in a more efficient way that could you know i, I know for stuff like um working in res life it was like a lot of that kind of stuff like people signing in guests or like signing up for break housing like more often than not pretty simple but we could like use a you know this process just to, to make it easier and uh, work better for both sides i think that's that's a yeah important absolutely consideration to, to you know take into account so um yeah, and I mean, and I think that segues well of just like uh, what you said of like, um, you know, learning how to implement this uh, mindset is, you know, like there's workshops and things that uh, happen and, um, you know, any other resources like that, anything that you'd want to kind of give a tip of the hat to, you know, books, videos, people, anything that comes to mind that, you know, could help someone learn more about this or uh, just become more fluent in design thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Um in terms of books, there there are two books, both written by the same author. Um, his name's Tom Kelly, and he's actually kind of thought of as one of the the founding fathers of design thinking. He and his brother Dave. Um, the books are called The Art of Innovation and Creative Confidence. Both books uh, do a fantastic job of outlining what the methodology is. Tons and tons of examples of where it's been used and how it's been successful. Um, and also a lot of just practical ideas for ways that you can use this in your own life, both as a robust process, as well as a bunch of just sort of creativity building, um, exercises. So I highly recommend both those books for really anybody in education because they are so applicable. Um, in terms of online resources, there's actually a really great website called design thinking for educators. 
com <laughs> and uh, it's it's basically a community of educators who are trying to use design thinking to improve many facets of the teaching experience both in terms of the student experience as well as the the teaching experience for those of us who are teaching um, it's a really great resource to kind of connect with other folks who are already using design thinking in their work so I definitely recommend checking that out um, and then in terms of video I'm hoping that you can include this link somewhere, but 60 Minutes actually did uh, an episode where they went and spent time with uh, the company called IDEO. And uh, this, again, was kind of the, the company that first brought design thinking into the, the public eye. And it is a fascinating case study of how design thinking works. It will give you so many ideas for how you could run your own meetings and uh, projects differently. And uh, I, I know the first time I saw it, I was hooked immediately. I, I found myself saying, I totally want to figure out how to start doing this in every problem that I try to solve. So definitely would recommend checking out that that out. It's uh, I think it's about a 20 minute long video. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you want to send that link over just so we can have it directly, I'm sure we can include that. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, all good stuff. Uh, so yeah, so we'll have... Uh, all that stuff that we talked about and uh, ways to connect with you and EAB uh, in the show notes for this episode. And um, yeah, we will uh, wrap things up here and we'll end as we always do. If you want to share your final thought to end the episode on. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose my, my final thought that I'd like to leave with the audience is um, what if you were to redesign the institutions of higher ed from the ground up today? how might they look different than what they currently look like? So, you know, what about the credit hour? Is the credit hour really the best measurement of learning? So what if we got rid of credit hours? What about the concept of a degree in four years? Like, does it take four years? Do you need to have a certificate on a piece of paper to be a proxy for your fitness in the world? Um, I think challenging some of these ideas as to you know, our conceptions of what higher ed must be is a really, really productive way of innovating on what we already have. So I'm not trying to suggest that what we have is totally wrong and broken and doesn't do amazing things, because clearly it does. But when you try to think about the underlying assumptions, and if you try to reframe what those are, and maybe even take a design thinking approach to redesigning some of them, um, it leads to all sorts of breakthrough insights. So I'm really looking forward to what the next couple of years will bring to the higher ed space. I think there's a lot of really innovative stuff going on. And um, I, I just encourage folks who are kind of in the driver's seat at all sorts of institutions to uh, think really critically about the way that they do things and about what the future has in store for them because it's an exciting time and there's so many opportunities to improve the work that we're doing and better serve our students. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, and I think... Uh... Like what you said, it's not that what's happening now is necessarily wrong. It's almost like the, the way that this sort of struck me is like, like, do we necessarily need like, what, like 4,000 institutions all across the U.S. doing it literally the same exact way? Like you said, of like credit hours, degrees that take you like four years, whatever. It's like, like, I think that has value for certain people. But I mean, it is really at this point in time increasingly becoming because, you know, society is deeming it not to be like a public good. Uh, that's in like the public interest that has become like a luxury good. So I think right, there right. needs to be like a diversity of ways that things happen, how long it takes and you know, how accessible it is and whether it's online or not. 
Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, because yeah, that, that sort of uh, grandiose thinking hopefully gets like the creative juices flowing, like you said, of like, if we built a university from the ground up today, what would that look like? And, uh, you know, once you start thinking about that, uh, you know, for our audience, maybe in your own little kind of uh, chunk of your world that is your university, you can start to, you know, make those changes of like, okay, how can we do this better? How can we, you know, work towards our goals, but also serve our students better? Because I think that makes it a little bit more palatable to the powers that be, I'm sure. I'm just like, you know, this is going to save us so much time and it helps our students. You know, there's those solutions out there that, you know, you can, you can get to by, uh, you know, looking into these resources that we had, inviting your students to the table. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many great tools out there in terms of different technology things that you can utilize. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, uh, stuff that uh, I, I love coming up with ideas and I think it is like hopefully if nothing else even beyond like I said even if like just that one more so of like invite your students to the table like that's one simple right right if like, that's your takeaway that is we've we've accomplished something right yeah and then it's like even if like you know you're already doing that hopefully this is just like for people listening just it's validation people, yeah, right, it's, yeah val- it's like it's validation just gets people even more sure. energized to you know just to think of new things and cause I, I think uh, you know, there can come those times and just the ebbs and flows of the year where you know, you're just kind of stuck doing the things that you're always doing. So it's like, you know, you might be like, you might need that little shot in the arm and hopefully this is it of just like, oh, I haven't looked into that that book yet or that website yet or that video yet. Or, you know, uh, like I said, we'll have ways to connect with you and, and the work that you do. Um, so, uh, you know, if folks want to keep the conversation going, they can do that as well. So, um yeah, all great stuff. Uh, like I said, we'll have everything down in the show notes for this episode. Uh, thank you again, uh, Grant, for taking time out for this episode. Uh, and uh, I'm sure I'll talk to you again later about uh, <laughs> all sorts of things. So Yeah, uh, I really hope so. I'd appreciate um, that. Yeah, just have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week. Thanks a lot, Dustin. It was a pleasure to meet you, and thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to help us out, leave us a review and rating on Stitcher or iTunes, or just share out the show so other people can find all the cool stuff we talk about every single week. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Student Affairs Spectacular Podcast.